Well, welcome everybody. Um, just by the fact that there are so many here, this is a very relevant topic for a lot of us, including Fair and me. So, um, Lana Manatrizio is going to be our speaker. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lana. She has an MA in clinical psychology and an MBA in healthcare management. She's been in the field of mental health for over 30 years, working as a therapist in Florida, then as a supervisor at a therapeutic foster care program at Hillside Hospital in Atlanta. For the past seven years, she's been at Ridgeview. She is now a recovering professional program coordinator. She lives here in Cobb County. She has three children aged 16 to 21. And she is going to talk about, I can open this back up. See why well, I don't like phones fair? I like to print it out. <laughs> um, she's going to talk about psychiatric disorders and use of self-medication in an effort to cope. So she's going to briefly talk about psychiatric disorders, the most common ones, general treatment for such things. She's going to talk a little bit about personality disorders, social stressors, substance abuse, and how they confound and complicate the mental health issues. So this is going to be a very relevant topic tonight. Lana did say that she could hang around a little bit after 8.30. We try to wrap up at 8.30, so if some of you can't get a question asked or if it's a very private question, you want to talk to her at the end. She said she would be glad to hang around. So, Lana, I'm going to pray for you, then I'm going to welcome you up, and I'm going to give you this. We are recording this, by the way, so it will be on the podcast in two weeks. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for loving us and for bringing people into our lives that want to help and want to restore families and, and want to restore individuals. And, Father, we just thank you for Lana, her genuine desire to be here tonight to share nuggets of wisdom and hope and encouragement with us we just pray tonight she'll be your vessel father that she she'll be open to allowing you to speak through her in a mighty way father we pray that tonight we will leave here encouraged and blessed and it's in jesus name that i pray amen welcome mama thank you for inviting me to come and speak it's an honor to be here in front of you um i am going to give you all some handouts. Don't feel like you have to read them. There is a lot of information. I don't love reading off pieces of paper, so a lot of times I will just talk. So I may go into a lot more detail. That's what's in the paperwork. I may omit some parts and um, just carry on if uh, spirit takes me in some direction that seems relevant. it also gets very boring really quickly um, when I'm just standing here talking to you. I've been known to put people to sleep very effectively <laughs> and relax them to no end. Um, I hope not to do that here. Um, feel free um, to ask questions. I-, I know that sometimes things are personal and you know we're recording. Feel free to ask me questions afterward if you have general questions. Um, I'll do my best to answer them. If I don't have the answers, I'll find them for you, and I'll get them to Fair and John, and, and they'll be able to share them with you. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and give you all a handful here, and just pass them around and give you all a handful there. And I hope I have enough. I made t- it's not a microphone. It's a recorder. But I, I will speak loudly because I have children and I know how. <laughs> so um, I think um, John had made a really good point about the relevance of the topic, right? We've been kind of topsy-turvy the last um, 18 months or so. 
the way things are going, there's a lot of unpredictability. There, there's a lot of shifts in how we do work and how we do school. Um, and folks that already have some predispositions or, or some, some prior things going on um, are definitely having some time coping with things. And, and I won't go into, you know, the, the whole COVID and the ramifications. I think you have another speaker coming um, with that. But we're definitely seeing an increase in folks, you know, looking for treatment, seeking treatment, um, folks struggling, um, folks trying to figure out how to cope. Um, and also trying to learn and, and get information. So I will read the, the front part because I thought it would be important to have a reason a, about why we are talking about this topic, right? The topic of co-occurring disorders. So somebody who has mental health issues and somebody who has substance use disorder and or addiction issues walking hand in hand, Many times they're not mutually exclusive, um, and many times there is not necessarily a causality, although often it is. So this is what we know statistically. And, and I did cite some resources for you on the back page. Um, there are some pretty reputable websites that have relatively recent studies um, that are being published that are w very well done, very large numbers, um, pretty objective. Um, and I use them for some of the sources of information, and there is a lot of detailed information there. So when I give you a kind of a summary and a synopsis, please know that there are resources you can go to to get some more um, information that's more detailed. So this is what we know, that many individuals who develop substance use disorders are also diagnosed with mental disorders. And about half of those who have mental illness during their lives will also experience sub substance use around that illness. One in four individuals, that's 25%, with a serious mental health illness also have a substance use disorder. The research suggests that adolescents with substance use disorder also have a high rate of co-occurring mental illness. So, it's estimated that over 60% of adolescents in the community-based substance abuse disorder programs also have a secondary diagnosis of some sort of a mental health issue. Depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. Um, and when I talk more about specific disorders, um, there are some that I kind of include together because they tend to walk hand in hand. So, um, we know probably some of the highest occurring substance disorders anxiety, post-traumatic stress, um, panic disorders. There is also higher prevalence in depression and bipolar disorders. Um, folks with schizophrenia, psychotic dis disorders as well, although their tendency is um, to be more focused on tobacco use, more so than any other um, people in the community or people with other disorders, um, and there are some reasons for that, and we can talk about biology and genetics. Um, but also alcohol, I think it's always the obvious choice, um, and marijuana. And I didn't put a lot of information in here about CBD, but I'm certainly happy to talk about it, and I'm happy to talk about some of the things that we're seeing um, in the community as well in the country with the legalization of certain substances in other states. Um, and, and what it means to us, right, as, as professionals, because... Um, and I can have a whole talk on that, some of the things that, that appear and are touted as being benign are not always necessarily so for all folks. So I'll just leave it at that, but we can touch on that later. So um, 
also, I would be remiss to not talk about some opiate disorders, right? That, that's a biggie in the community. Um, 43% of folks with mental health issues can develop an opiate use disorder. Um, and sometimes folks, by tending to a health issue using opiates, will develop addiction and can develop some issues related to that. So that's going to be kind of... Um, basically a summary of some of the things that I'm going to dissect and talk about in a little more detail. All right. If I missed anything, let me know. I'll be, I'll be happy to, to go that way as well. So um, what do we know? Three main pathways that contribute to comorbidity. Comorbidity is two disorders coexisting between substance use disorder and mental illness. So common risk factors can contribute to both mental illness and substance use and addiction. Um, and I'll address those. Mental health illness may contribute to substance use and addiction, and substance use and addiction can contribute to development of mental illness, right? So it sort of becomes, in a funny way, you know, is it the chicken or the egg, right? So wh where does it start? Um, the reason I talk about the first point, the common factors, what does that mean? Um, basically it comes down to genetics. I don't know if um, you all have heard a term that's been passed around lately a lot called epigenetics, right? It, it's a biggie. There's some really, really good research going on and I could probably print out hundreds of pages um, on, on what is happening and some of those resources are in um, the websites that I have given you. Um, it, it's the study of how our genes express ourselves, themselves and why right? You might have a genetic predisposition for substance use um, that may never express itself, right? Based on how you live your life, what you do, how you react to situations, and what you choose to use or not to use as a substance. Um, and there are other folks that have several predispositions, or they're actually finding that some genes <coughs> express themselves in both health issues, mental health disorders, and also propensity for developing addictive behavior. Right? So there's just some really fascinating studies. And um, you know, John gave me a really nice introduction. Over the years, I found myself um, shifting and developing, love is a funny word, but, but much respect and, and um, much commitment to working with folks who have substance use disorders over folks that have psychiatric disorders. I think it's, it's a really fascinating field. Um, it's also gratifying because there is a lot of success. And I know if you're struggling or your family member is struggling, it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Um, but I can tell you more success stories than not for most of the folks that we treat and most of the folks that I've had contact with. And it always makes me hopeful. And it always um, makes me feel like I engage with someone. And if they can get healthy, they can help someone else get healthy. It, it really is that butterfly effect. So when I start talking about mental health and start talking about the gene expression and start talking about the ways we start coping with things or the way we use with things, um, you know, my mind goes there and to information I get from my patients and the participants in my program. And what it is is for some folks, um, when they take that substance, whatever that is, they will describe it as finally having 
a key that fit into a lock in their brain. Right? That, 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 I know it sounds really odd, but they will say, I felt this way for years and years, and when I had that first drink, or when I took that first opiate, or when I smoked marijuana, suddenly I felt normal or I felt like I wasn't carrying that burden, or I felt like I wasn't hyper-focused on something, or I felt more relaxed, or I felt a release, or whatever words they used to describe it, right, was meaningful to them in some way, because it alleviated the, the stress and the pressure that they carry. Um, and what we find, and mental illness as well, is a lot of times folks, when, when they are kind of at, at their worst, when they are feeling suicidal, when they are feeling hopeless, whatever they turn to for coping is not because they're bad people and they want to harm or, or impact or, or destroy themselves or somebody else. It's usually because they want to stop the pain. Um, that's what I always find. I've never heard anybody say, you know what, I really wanted to you know, see my friends and family come to my funeral service and have me laid out. Never, ever. It's always like I was hurting or I was in a space that I finally found some relief from. Um, and, and that's why we look you know, at the importance, because if you can look at genetic factors and if you can do some analysis and say, hey, you know, this person is carrying a lot of traits of things that we need to be vigilant about, um, then we can intervene really early, right? So that when your kid... Um, breaks their ankle and they go to the doctor and they say, we'll give you 30 days of opiates, you might say, yeah, you know, maybe we'll give them some ibuprofen and a cold pack and, and see how they tolerate that, right? Because um, with substances like that, with benzos, with, with opiates, you can develop that addiction pretty quickly, um, even without having a propensity for it. And I'll talk about that on the other side when we get to point three about how substance use can create and cause issues that were not necessarily there. All right, co-occurring disorders, you may have folks experiencing something that they're not familiar with, right? Young person has a breakup. The breakup is terrible. They're away at college. Their mom and dad are not there. Their friends go, hey, let's take you out and let's have a good time. We'll go drinking and, you know, maybe some pot or something. And suddenly that terrible breakup that you're experiencing, you find that you had a light night or you did not sit in your room and cry. Um, and then you want to repeat that pattern, right? Because you don't want to feel the pain and you don't want to feel the hurt. Um, and then that pattern will link up with how you manage some of those feelings of discomfort, right? Because it's hard to sit with feelings of discomfort when you're in pain if there's a way that you can shift those, right? Nobody wants to sit and, and be sad or angry or frustrated. Um, but, you know, I always tell my patients that emotions wheel that we show you doesn't just say happy, right, and joyful. It has a wide range of emotions. We're supposed to experience them as human beings. They're not always comfortable. Um, but we certainly have developed some means to cope with them. And I will stick strictly to substances, but please know that in the background we also have gambling and we have porn and we have shopping and we have food. So um, when you're looking at your families or you're looking at your kids or, or seeing things that happen in your church or your neck of the wood or your neighborhood, 
um, be aware that those are things to look at as well. Um, interesting fact, folks that have bariatric surgery or lap band surgery, a humongous percentage of them, I believe it's 60% and up, develop an alcohol use disorder after they lose the weight. So they t just turn to a different substance. It gets metabolized very quickly, so they get that high really quickly. Um, very common thing. So eating disorders will often walk hand in hand um, with especially alcohol use. So just a little tidbit here. I told you I'd go off the grid, <laughs> but I'll pull myself back. So that's how co-occurring things happen. A lot of times you might have a younger person. You know, mental health, the bigger symptoms generally will express themselves, I would say, between 18 and 25. The smaller symptoms you might see, or if you have someone with a significant you know, genetic hand, um, you can see them even earlier. Like with kids who are bipolar, you might see that their sleep is all off. You know, that's usually like a sign they can't sleep, or you'll see they're maybe a little overreactive to certain situations, or they might be really excited over something really small and then really down over something that's relatively insignificant. So you can start picking up patterns. But generally what happens, and it's the most devastating thing, is you see the big symptoms come up right around college age, right? You send your kid off to school, they're doing great, then suddenly they're not. Well, what happened? Well, they're maturing, right? So prefrontal cortex matures when you're about 25. Your hormones start settling out when you're about 18, and that's when you start seeing the true symptomology. But as an aside, I will tell you, as a parent of 16 to 21-year-olds, those people all appear like they're crazy, and they will make you feel like you're crazy whether or not they have anything else going on with them biologically or substance use wise. That's because their hormones are all over the place <laughs> and that's just how they roll for a bit. And then if we're lucky, they start settling out. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we don't diagnose them too early. I'm not a lover of diagnosing folks too early. I just kind of let it play out, right? They have personality styles and they have hormones. Once it plays out, you can start seeing things. So what happens if you really have a big symptom, right? If, if you're lucky, and I know I use the word very loosely, right? Someone catches you, you go to a school counselor, your roommate says, dude, you know, something's not right with you, um, and, and you get some intervention, right? But what happens if that doesn't happen? And you're like, my God, you know, what is happening to me? I can't sleep. And your roommate says, well, I've got something for you that'll help you sleep, right? And suddenly you can sleep. And suddenly you can't sleep without that little something right? But you don't know that you have a mental health issue. You just know that you couldn't sleep and suddenly you can um, and things are all right, but the mental health issue doesn't go away. Um, and it just kind of starts snowballing and building up. More common is, um, I'll talk about marijuana some a little bit down the line. Um, our kids, I want to say our kids, many kids um, think that it's a very cool and harmless substance. Everyone's doing it, it's not a big deal, it's legal in several states now, uh, you know, it doesn't do anything to me. Well, this is not the stuff of 1983 when I was in high school. <laughs> you know, this is a completely different beast, you know, it's not the, the grass in, the, in a little baggie, a lot of times it's the oil and, and they vape it and it comes in different forms uh, and the strength of it and the way it's bred and grown. Um, is different. Um, so I've seen folks come in after smoking marijuana with pretty significant psychotic features, 
that look like full-blown schizophrenia or um, some sort of other psychosis. Um, I have also seen um, folks get into a pretty depressed state. So there is a really good brand new study. It just came out a couple of um, months ago, um, and I printed it out to all our staff. Um, I think it was the National Institutes of Mental Health, if I'm not mistaken. Um, They studied over 200,000 young adults, and they found that those who have consistently smoked marijuana for periods of time, once they stopped smoking, had progressively higher incidence of depression, like significant depression, not just some having a bad day, long-term depression, and much higher rates of suicide ideation and suicide attempts. So whatever magic it does biologically and genetically, it is doing it, even though they might not feel like it's an insignificant substance. So we're always vigilant about that. It's also very hard to treat folks and see true symptoms of anything that's going on if it's consistently masked by substance use, right? Um, Our requirement at Ridgeview is you've got to be off anything. And anything, I mean anything. I mean, if you were taking a benzodiazepine to manage anxiety, you can't take it. We've got to see what your anxiety looks like. If you were taking Adderall because you're ADD, well, you can be ADD in the group room with us. We're okay with that because otherwise we, we don't always see the true symptom. You don't always experience the true symptom. Make sense? All right, and I know ADD is a pretty common disorder, ADHD, you hear that a lot. Counterintuitive, but if you have someone who has ADD, ADHD, and you don't manage it early on, they're more likely to develop psychiatric issues and substance abuse issues. Um, because it is, there is a lot of genetic components, and I will not go into the dopamine and the serotonin and um, all the interesting ways that our brain works, but it, when they do really good brain studies or the brain mapping, they can see a lot of the ways that your brain and the neurons are firing. So what you find is someone who does have true ADD, if you give them a stimulant, it'll actually make them calm and focused. And the people who abuse it, if you give them a stimulant, they'll be, you know, the Energizer Bunny. They'll clean your house top to bottom and, you know, be able to perform. And, and they love that, right? Because suddenly you're very effective and you're very active. That's really not how the medication is, not, is made to feel. So um, I don't want people to be scared if their kid get diagnosed with some, something like, oh, my God. Because, you know, there, there's good use for some of the things that, that we talk about. There's also good use for opiates because if you're going through surgery, let me tell you, um, I wouldn't want you to necessarily white knuckle it um, if, if you're gonna be in some pretty severe, severe pain. We just have to um, be educated. I always say my best customer is an educated customer and this way you know exactly what you're looking at and what you're looking for. Um, you know, with opiates, I tell folks, I'm sure you've all seen that commercial when you walk into the room blindfolded and they're like, why do you smell? And you're like, oh, I'm in the Garden of Eden and there's all these flowers and stuff. And you take off the blindfold and it's like a garbage heap. And they're like, look, our sanitizer is so great that you think the garbage heap is uh, the Garden of Eden. But that's kind of what opiates do, right? They bind with your receptors and they make you think that everything's groovy and everything's good and you're really calm. 
And then the more you take them, the more receptors multiply, and the more you need them, and the less groovy things are. So if you're having surgery, right, you're not looking to feel groovy. You're looking to not be in pain and then be done with it, right? I digress, I told you. (laughs) All right, so kind of moving on, we talked about some of the college stuff. We talked about... um, brain can be affected by substance use disorder, right? You, you could have the kid or a friend or their friends who are just like, dude, this is really cool to experiment with stuff, right? We're going to get drunk tonight or we're going to do this or we're going to do the other. And they just really like the party lifestyle. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when you develop a physical dependence uh, on a substance um, and psychological dependence as well, um, it creates something permanent in you. So you will never be able to safely use substances once you get off them because the way you respond to them and the biology you set yourself up for is pretty brutal. And unfortunately, that's why we see the overdoses as well. You'll have someone um, progressively use more and more of a substance because that's what they have to do to feel the way they want to feel. And then they get off it and they stay clean and they're doing really well and then they have a relapse. Well, they don't relapse, you know, with 28th of what they used to take. They relapse exactly where they left off with the amount that will kill a horse and often does. So that, that's one of the things that we look for is making sure like the physiology is responsive to treatment that we are managing the symptoms and so sometimes once the folks clear and we get them off the substances, you know, giving them the proper antidepressant or giving them some medication management that will contain that, we will often um, also put them on some sort of a blocker, either an naltrexone, like an opiate blocker, or something along, you've probably all heard of something like antabuse, you know, something that will um, keep those cravings down, or that if you do use, you will not have the effect. Um, they're now available in shots and long-release shots. Those are our preference because, you know, you can, oops, forget to take your pill today or tomorrow or maybe judiciously not take it just in case. Um, and then you kind of start broadening and, and opening the window. Um, also, there are folks that play with stuff. And what does that mean? That means like, oh, my God, look at this. I've been clean for eight months now, and I proved to everybody and myself that I could do it. And that means I really didn't have a problem. And I I can do it once in a while or here or there or only on Tuesday or only Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. And next thing you know, every day is Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock, right? So we're vigilant of that sort of stuff as well. But going back, let's talk about... um, environmental factors that are associated with both substance use disorder and um, mental health, right? Um, We talked a little about genetics, um, things like post-traumatic stress, right? That's why we see a lot of veterans or people who have been in in war situations. Um, People who have been in natural disasters, maybe witnessed an accident, you know, women who have been um, raped or sexually traumatized, and men too. or in any kind of really bad experience. Um, a lot of times, you know, results in things like flashbacks or numbness um, or discomfort, and you will find many folks turning to substances to use that as, you know, a way to calm yourself down, the way to cope. Um, 
physically and emotionally traumatized people have a much higher risk of drug use and substance use. Um, Post-traumatic stress and anxiety is something we really look at because that's a, that's a quick fix, right? And we all want to f have a quick fix because it's really hard to deal with a lot of stuff, especially if you're flooded with memories and flashbacks and um, things that are really disruptive to your everyday living. Um, certain mental health disorders um, have established risks for developing a substance use disorder. Um, also, some drugs we already talked about reduce temporary, temporarily reduce symptoms of mental illness, although some drugs may exacerbate symptoms of mental health issues, right? Um, classic example is someone who's bipolar, right? Bipolar is a lot of times like they're high, um, so using something like a stimulant to try to maintain that high will actually exacerbate and consent them into a psychotic state. So exacerbation and um, we also know for example I put it here that um, cocaine use can significantly worsen the symptoms of bipolar disorder and also contribute to the progression of illness right so with bipolar you have the wave it goes up and it goes down right so there's kind of um, a rhythm to it for folks and um, sometimes the substance substance will disrupt the reason the, the rhythm, right? So you can drop down very quickly and bipolar depressed is a very brutal depression. So it, it would feel very significantly um, disturbing. Um, or sometimes when you are in kind of a, a normal state, it will shoot you up very quickly into manic and that can also have some ramifications, especially with impulsiveness, right? Um, I'll talk about that. Some folks that are bipolar tend to be a little more impulsive, especially if they're in a manic state. Also, folks who take substances tend to be impulsive, <laughs> right? So the combination is, is not always a great one, um, but it's there, right? And they become their own pharmacists, so they kind of learn how to control that, and you got to be careful of that. Um, so when an individual develops a mental illness, associated changes in brain activity may increase the vulnerability for problematic use of substances, right? So if you are having um, a symptom, let's say, that loosens your inhibitions, right? Something that might not seem like a great idea might suddenly seem like a pretty decent idea. I'll give you an example. I had a, a, a performer one time who wound up um, to have to be resuscitated um, and came to us for care. Um, and didn't see a problem with what has happened to him. And he said, well, before every performance, we, we, we drink, we get drunk, that's our thing, and we go out there and perform. And I said, well, what was different this time? Because you died. And he said, well, someone handed me a pill, and I took it, and I don't know what happened next. And I said, well, how many of you would walk down the street and someone would be like, well, here, <laughs> take this. Not many. Most of us wouldn't even try food, you know. You ever have dinner with someone, they're like, oh, what is this? Here, try that. And you're like, oh, I, no, I don't think so. Um, but when your inhibitions are loosened, right, suddenly it seems like a great idea or some weird act, right? We're going to drink and then we're going to take some pills. Why don't we just climb the water tower now, right? Or go swimming or go swimming in the nude in the neighbor's pool, right? Or go overturn their barbecue or whatever seems like a great thing in the moment. And then it just kind of snowballs in terms of ramification and legal issues and, you know, everything that goes along with it. So 
that's something we look forward to is just kind of how you process and what happens to you when you start using the substances and then how they trigger some of the other things. Use of credit cards with manic episodes is a horrible yeah. problem. Shopping, yeah, it, it, it's a huge thing. That's why I always mention it um, because it's like a self-fulfilling thrill, right? Um, whenever you engage in a compulsive behavior, um, you get that little adrenaline rush. It's almost like a drug, right? So it's the, the acquisition. It's not the owning the thing and using it. It's the, the process of acquisition that gives you that, that hit. So you're absolutely right. Well, you drink of water. All right. I'm only on page two, and look at the time I've used. <laughs> but the good news is you have all the information, right? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just common depressions, right? A handful, all of us know what they are. Depression, right? Depression encompasses a wide range of symptoms, right? When you look at um, the diagnostic um, list, you go, if you have five of these, that would qualify you, right? Um, because there are so many. So the basic things I think we all know about, the feeling sad or having a depressed mood, loss of interest in activities that used to bring you pleasure, changes in appetite, either up or down, you can have weight loss or weight gain, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, loss of energy, um, a lot of listlessness. Sometimes folks are really, really restless, um, and they don't necessarily associate that with depression or depressive symptomology. So when we start treating um, folks and they come to us and they're like, I've been taking Prozac for eight days and it's not doing a darn thing for me. Uh, and I'll say to them, well, you know what I noticed when you sit in the group room? Um, you're not tapping your foot anymore. <laughs> oh, um, and you know what? The other day you actually read an excerpt from something we were studying, right? So you were able to concentrate. Because a lot of times it's that, like you're looking at the page and you're like, I've been looking at the same page and the same line and I don't even know what I'm reading. So it's little things like that. You might have, you know, gotten out of your pajamas that day or just something else that required a little bit of concentration and thought into it. So I look for, for these little things because then you can measure incremental improvement. So when your person says to you, well, this sucks and it doesn't work as well as my Adderall, you can say, well, it, it might suck, but you're dressed and your teeth are brushed and you had breakfast. So <laughs> that's an improvement and, and we'll take all of those, right? Because at the end of the day, um, and I tell all my people, and I'll share that with you too, the requirements as far as a healthcare practitioner and as a parent, and, and as a friend, and um, as a family member, are very simple. For me, they never waver. Safety, health, quality of life. Nothing else matters. You have those three, you're golden, right? Safety is always number one, because if you don't feel safe, or if you don't feel healthy, if you have chronic pain, if you're dealing with mental health issues, addiction, um, it's gonna be very hard to feel like you have a quality of life. Right, but once you start managing the two, the third one will usually fall into place. So, you know, we all look at the picture of what we want our life or our family life to look like, and I encourage folks, take it down to those three, right? Every, everything else is gravy. Take it down to those three um, and just build on that. So, with depression, you know, sometimes feeling worthless or guilty, 
there are some behavioral symptoms. You know, we obviously see the tearfulness, the lack of libido for folks. Um, when your hygiene goes down, um, you know, the eating and sleeping. We talked about suicidal ideation for some folks. For some folks, it's a, it's a suicide attempt. And again, for majority, it will not be kind of a maliciously minded. It would be more the severity of the pain that they're trying to manage and, and de-escalate. So that's something to look at. And a lot of times that's when substance use will come into place as well, is, you know, taking something to, to alleviate the pain. I'll share if you don't mind, can I share personal um, with you all? Um, when I was in college, I had a really good friend um, that came to my dorm room around 8 o'clock at night, which was really a, kind of unusual, just showed up out of nowhere, um, and said, um, I'm not feeling really well. I need to lay down. And I was like, okay, weird, um, but wasn't really responding to me. And I um, might have been 20 years old at the time, and knew very little about what to look for and didn't know what to look for and I got really scared and my roommate came in and I said I don't know what's wrong with him because he is really not responding or answering me and he says he wants to sleep but why would he come to my dorm to sleep um, so I wound up calling the campus uh, security and they called the paramedics and the paramedics said to me well what did he take and, and I said well what do you mean he said well what did he take and I said I don't know he doesn't take anything they're like no he took something what did he take and I was like no idea. So they wound up rushing him to the hospital. They wound up pumping his stomach. He was really stressed at school. At school, He came from a very traditional Irish family that had all girls, and he was the only son. And there were a lot of expectations, and he was not doing well in one of his classes. And he decided that he just needed to sleep. And when he decided he needed to sleep, he took a whole bottle of whatever pills he had. I don't even know what they are. Um, and then he decided he didn't feel well, and he came to my dorm to sleep. Thank God, because that w would have been a permanent sleep. But naivete, right? I would not have known. Um, the flip side of that, went to a psychiatric hospital for five days, got better, came back to school, um, and his parents said this didn't happen. Didn't happen. We don't believe in that. He doesn't have a problem. He's, he's all right. Um, he just needed some sleep. He made a mistake. Um, and carry on. And I remember a group of us friends meeting with him and sitting down with him and saying, regardless of what your parents believe, we believe that you, you have some struggle and you need to tend to that um, because we didn't want to have a repeat experience of having our friend in that much, much trouble. So you know, that has created some vigilance on, on my part um, about how easily and quickly things can go south without someone really intending them to go there, without thinking them through. So I share that with you because, you know, depression um, is something I look for because sometimes the signs are really subtle um, and sometimes you'll see them externally. And I'm like looking at the family and the family structure we should have been aware that, you know, there was a lot of pressure to put on a kid. But, you know, that happens. Nowadays we have Narcan available, and I've heard at other lectures yeah. that if you have young people in your home or their friends coming over, yeah. have a Narcan in your house because you just never know. And that's oh. if something happens to a friend when they're staying over or your child. True. We have a remedy, and you can actually buy it at a drugstore. Yeah. There's a lot of good laws have been passed that make things available, and I always tell people, you know what, overreact. 
I'd rather you overreact and be like, my bad, um, and let your kids think that you're not the cool parent and you embarrass them in front of everybody else. I'm good with that. that I live for that. I live to embarrass my children everywhere I go. And I, and I let them know that too. So there is no expectation that somehow I'll be the cool mom and they can do stuff when I'm home or not home. It's like, no, I'm not going to be a cool mom. I'm going to be the mom that's going to be in the middle of the street with your pants down beating you and you go ahead and call social services. <laughs> I'll welcome them. Um, so, and tell all your friends. I'll be beating them too. So, <laughs> um, because, you know, we, we kind of have to set that precedent for them that, that I will be here and I will be watching until you are smart enough to do. And we can have the smartest and the coolest kids, prefrontal cortex, does not develop until 25. So no matter how smart and cool they are, they're still a kid and they still are prone to that impulsivity. So just, you know, be aware of that and uh, you don't have to be the cool parent. I give you permission. (laughs) All right. So under depression, I like to lump things that go hand in hand with it. And the reason for that is because they respond well to the same medication treatment. They also respond well to therapeutic interventions. I'm big on talk therapy, it's powerful. CBT, cognitive behavioral, great. DBT, dialectic behavioral, very powerful skills. And because depression walks hand in hand with anxiety a lot of times, with post-traumatic stress, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, Um, There are some antidepressants that um, work well with some eating disorders. Those are a little harder to treat, and there's a little more behavioral stuff involved. Um, But I think Zoloft and and a couple of other uh, will kind of lessen that kind of propensity for that kind of impulsivity. So I always put them together. Panic disorder, real deal. If you haven't experienced it, um, sometimes... You don't think it, it's like a unicorn, but, but it is. You have that really moment of such severe anxiety where physiologically you can feel like you're having a heart attack or that you're falling apart, although you can't catch your breath and the world is ending. And, and, and it's a pretty big thing. And once it happens to somebody, they get really scared that it's going to happen again. Um, again, works, walks hand in hand with depression um, and, um, again, responds fairly well to medications and desensitization. What I didn't put in here, and it's a little more um, therapeutically involved, are things like phobias, right? Because those tend to be a little more entrenched. Um, They tend to respond to more behavioral intervention, uh, longer point of work. And also, if they're going to walk hand in hand with some addiction, the numbers are not going to be significantly different or larger than the numbers for anything else. So I just kind of left that one alone. It's in the background there. All right. Um, talked about OCD, talked about PTSD. Um, I'm going to briefly touch on some of the substances that are common for depression use, right? Our friend alcohol. Do we know why? Legal. <laughs> and everywhere. It's legal and it's everywhere, and uh, um, it's cool, right? Most of the time, you think it's kind of cool. Like, look what I can get away with, you know, especially if you're underage. Um, so, just because it's there and available and easy to get your hands on, it's it's a little harder. I would like to believe to get hands on other substances, but I'm told I'm naive, and uh, that actually people want to get stuff can get stuff very easily unfortunately but we'll start with alcohol just because it's the suspect number one and and it's there 
I believe in early education. You know, I believe in talking to kids early on and saying some of these things are, are not pretty and they're not glorious. Um, and then I tell them about all how it's a toxin, how it's a poison that your body tries to get out as quickly <laughs> as it can. And, uh, and they don't love to hear that, <laughs> but, but it's true. Um, so, you know, you give them those messages and, and some of them, they listen to you. You don't think they do and you don't feel like they do, um, but wait till you hear them talk to other people, if you hear them talk to other people. Everything you tell them, they will regurgitate. They might think it doesn't apply to them, but they will think it applies to somebody else. Um, or as my kids famously are known to say, dude, my mom can get you into Ridgeview. <laughs> so um, there you go. Um, you can all say that. You can say, I know this lady that can get you into Ridgeview. I give you permission. <laughs> so alcohol, marijuana, is a biggie. Again, it's, it's easily accessible nowadays. And it's also easily hidden because you do not smell it and see it in the form that we're all kind of used to. It's in the vapes and it's in the oil and, and you don't smell it and you don't know that it's there. It's, and it's in the edibles. Um, and even if someone thinks it's benign compared to some of the other substances, it is addictive. You can get psychologically addicted to it. And it also opens a little door for other impulsive behavior. Just like the guy I told you who took the pill that someone handed him. If you're high and then someone says, hey, let's do this or try this or take this or drink that, you're more likely to do it than if you weren't high. So something to be aware of. Um, I'm not a lover of the vape pens because I always distrust them because I always think they've got something illicit in there. Um, so, you know, I, I look for that. Um, with, I don't love my kids' friends to vape. I certainly wouldn't not like them to vape. Um, but if you ever have a, someone in your home and you're concerned, um, it, it's not easy to check, but that's something I would, I would look for and be concerned about. So, that, um, stimulants. I think we talked about those a little bit. We talked about the ADD medication, right? If you're taking it as prescribed and as needed, it's actually pretty effective um, and does a good job of keeping you on track and, and keeping you calm and, and having you be functional. If you're using it as a stimulant, um, it's usually not your friend. Um, MDMA is a synthetic. Um, you hear about um, things like Molly, which has got a little more psychedelic to it as well. Cocaine, um, you know, crack is pretty evil, but people are still snorting. You know, I, I was shocked to find out that how much cocaine is out there, especially in certain industries. And I, I don't know if your kids are lawyers. Don't let them be lawyers. Uh, <laughs> they, they seem to have a propensity for cocaine and alcohol. I, I don't know why, but that seems to be the drug of choice. And I think it's the stimulant in it, right? Because they work really long hours so they can bill. So they pump themselves up, and then they go to these meetings where there's alcohol, and then they need to de-stress and help themselves go to sleep. And that's one of the reasons that alcohol is also so uh, prevalent in terms of abuse, right? It almost mimics a bipolar disorder, right? It's a two-edged sword, because if you're really, really hyper, 
takes you down like a sedative. And if you're really, really down, it gives you a little bit of a oomph, right? You go to the party, you don't want to be there, everything sucks, you can't talk to anybody, you have a couple of drinks, and suddenly you're the life of the party, right? So it picks you up. Um, but just like bipolar, it yo-yos, right? It takes you up, and then it brings you down. It takes you up, and it brings you down. So you have to continue to supplement it to stay where you want to stay for the period of time where you want to stay. And then you just take it to avoid the down, right? So it kind of becomes this really evil loop that's very hard to get out of. Um, Methamphetamine means, you know, meth, unfortunately, is, is kind of big, too. Um, it, it's much more powerful... I think, than cocaine and that um, than things like Adderall or any kind of a stimulant. It's a quicker hit. Anything that gets absorbed through the mouth, right, goes right to the mucous membranes, which is why alcohol works so quickly, right? It starts absorption in the mouth. The mouth goes right through the nasal passages and hits the brain, and, and it's, a, it's a quick high. Um, and, and it's a pretty, I call it a very lethal drug because you're constantly chasing it because it's so powerful. Um, synthetic stimulants I'm going to touch on. You probably heard the names, and if you haven't, just file them in the back of your mind. Kratom and, and Spice are two friends, right? So what is Kratom? So it, it's a little plant that grows somewhere in Asia that is kind of like a tea leaf and have some medicinal quality, right? And they think you brew it and you have it as a tea or whatever. It's kind of cool. It's like drinking chamomile, except it's not because they don't sell it in this country. It's legal. You order it off the internet. They're try- consistently trying to shut down all these websites that keep popping up because they change names and they change the name of the substance, right? But you will have kids, and that's how we most often see them with psychotic features at the hospital, is what happened? It took Kratom. Oh, the hell did you get Kratom? Well, I was really stressed, and it was finals time, and my friend said I can order it online, and it, like, takes off the edge, and it's good for depression, and because I certainly don't have depression, so I don't want to take Prozac or Zoloft or Lexapro or any of those things that mean I'm crazy and have to go to the psychiatrist to get. But this stuff that I order from China on the Internet and then I take, which is 8,000 times the potent quality of what it should be of the leaf that will make the tea. Um, well, I've seen folks come into catatonic state, and it took them weeks to get out of it, and thank God they do, right? But, but it, it's pretty brutal because at the end of the day, you don't know what you're ordering and you don't know what you're getting. Same thing with spice. It's some sort of a synthetic contraption, bath salts is the most common one. You can buy them at the gas station. I'm like, why you would want to ingest bath salts? I do not know. Um, But apparently it's looking for high. You'll also have, and those are not very common, thank God, but they're the most lethal, is the huffers, is the people who will sniff the paint or the the computer board screen cleaner um, or what have you. Because, again, quick hit to the brain goes right through the mucous membrane because you're introducing it through the nasal passage or the mouth um, and pretty devastating pretty quickly because can create some death in some people um, and also can create some permanent damage right because you're shooting it right into your brain so spend a lot of time on depression we'll spend a little bit of time on bipolar Right, we already talked about the ups and the downs in the mood. Uh, is anybody not familiar? I can go into more detail. Bipolar, you know, we used to call it manic depressive. Um, 
doesn't look the same for all people. Some people are rapid cyclers, and what that means is they can go up and down fairly quickly. And some people are long cyclers. So that means they can have months of being in a really good, high, very effective spot, and then months in being in a very brutal depression. Um, I have an anecdotal story. I had a patient years ago who was bipolar, and when he was very manic, he was very creative and he was very successful. He had a brilliant business. He made millions of dollars. Um, then his mania escalated into psychotic features and he felt very benevolent. He felt like he needed to bless the world and he went to the bank and took out all his money and he drove in his car and threw it all out the window. And by the time I saw him, he was living in a trailer home with his brother, trying to regroup, very depressed because what goes up must come down. Um, true story, like you, some of the stories we tell, you can't make this stuff up. An extreme story, um, but nonetheless, you know, the trajectory of an illness is such that it can take you these places. Um, some folks, bipolar 2, tend to be not as high, not as long, but the bipolar depression is much more brutal than a regular depression because their baseline is different, right? If our baseline is here, right, this is your good day with birthday cake and ponies and everything going right, right? And then you drop down a little depressed, your drop is not as big as a bipolar person because their good day is, you know, not a birthday cake, it's a bakery. <laughs> and, and it's a zoo and they're riding the elephant, right? And uh, who's the hot one? Jennifer Lopez is their girlfriend <laughs> or, or their boyfriend or whatever. So when they drop, they don't drop to the normal range. They drop way below. So it's a much bigger drop, which is why I believe um, this is the disorder that walks hand in hand with substance use uh, most frequently, about 60%. So we know there's a genetic predisposition for it. Bipolar tends to run in families. Um, a lot of times, if you have someone and they get diagnosed as bipolar and they're like, I don't know where I got it, no one in my family is bipolar, the first question I ask them is, anyone in your family an alcoholic? And they'd be like, yeah, my grandma, my grandpa, my uncle, my third cousin, my 28th cousin, and then you're like, well, there you go. Because in 1944, we weren't calling you bipolar. You were the town drunk, right? And if you were a functional drunk, we weren't calling you anything because you provided for your family. So we watch for that because alcohol manages that, right? So it has the ups and the downs, um, and you can manage that. And I had a friend in college who was bipolar, and I met her, and she, the first thing she said to me is, I don't drink, I'm an alcoholic. And I, I was shocked. I was like, you're 22, right? And she said, no, when I started college, that's all I did is I was, drank all the time to manage my mood. And I had to stop drinking and then realized that what I really needed was lithium because the mood was all over the place. The beauty of bipolar, there is a beauty to it, is you never get the illness without getting a gift. Those are the folks that tend to be very creative and have some really special skills, either in the arts or whatever they do, they tend to be very successful. Their brain is wired that way. So I always tell people, don't get scared when you get diagnosis of bipolar. It's very manageable. It's extremely manageable, very successfully. And the nice thing is the, the dips kind of level out as you get older, right? And, and they do. And also you get the gift. 
So whatever your gift is, nurture that gift because you can have a, a very productive, very successful, very good life with that. Um, to go back to depression, because I gave bipolar some kudos, so I feel like I should give depression some kudos <laughs> as well, right? So we know a major depressive episode will last four to six months. If, if it's truly a genetically driven biological depressive episode, if it's situational, it will abate proportional to the situation, right? If you lose a loved one, if there is some grief and loss, you know, it takes time. It will get incrementally better. If you're a teen and you have a breakup, it will get better probably the next time someone thinks you're cute, right? So it's a little bit of a quicker resolution. So situational shorter d duration, if you're really in a depressive episode with a lot of stuff going on and you feel you can't get out of it, I would say four to six weeks truly. With medication, you'll be out of it fairly quickly, but you'll have to stay on the medication to make sure that you're managing, right? Because if you get off the meds too quickly, you can spiral down. So, so just now with depression, 90% will resolve itself fairly well. Um, there are some people who have resistant treatment, resistant depression. We can talk another another talk. I'll come and visit you all again about some other modalities they do. You can try different medications. There's ECT. There's um, TMS, the transmagnetic treatment. So there are some really good modalities. So I never want folks to despair because um, we have really, really good tools. Um, it just in the moment when you're going through stress, it doesn't feel like it. But know that they're there. So, going back to psychotic disorders, that's the last one on my list, and we'll finish up with that. You'll have time for questions, right? Um, I think those are pretty cut and dried. They're heavily genetically predisposed. I believe, as of the last time I checked, there were 108 genetic markers that were identified for schizophrenia. It, it is that heavily biologically driven. Um, of course, you can get psychosis you know, from drug use or head injuries, you know, some TBD, traumatic brain injury, um, maybe a traumatic brain injury that gets paired up with some substance use or, or something other that's more complicated. Um, but usually there is a pretty strong genetic influence to that. Um, you know, what does that mean? You know, hallucinations, I think we all know what that means, seeing things that other people don't see, maybe hearing voices, responding to internal stimuli, right? So you have active symptoms, like symptoms that you can see someone's not right, right? Like, oh my God, they're talking to themselves, they're talking to the wall, they think the TV is talking to them, right? Those are active symptoms. Passive symptoms you might not always see, they might be hearing voices or responding to their own stimuli. Um, the easiest way to catch them is in what I call circular thinking, right? Someone will say to you, one of my patients, hey, I told my parents I woke them up at two in the morning because we had to go look at the moon because the moon was telling me something. Well, what was the moon telling you? Well, we had to go look at it because it was sending me a message. All right, well, what was the message? I had to wake my parents up. And so it, it, the loop doesn't quite close, right? So when you start reasoning through what the delusion is, um, there isn't quite a closure, right? The, the thinking becomes circular or it becomes tangential, right? I knew that I was not meant to eat chicken because the other day I was driving by Publix and I saw a red car and whenever I see a red car, it reminds me of the time when I was a little child and I had the red car and my mom was making chicken. And then I saw this lady come out of Publix and she looked like my mom and it made me believe that I should not be eating chicken because of the red car and my mom and the chicken. And you're like, okay. 
Uh, and that's what it sounds like, but not to them. To them, the, the linkage is very real and meaningful. So I always listen for that um, because it's significant, because it's not always easy to catch because of so-and-so steep. I'm not meant to be eating chicken because I had an experience at Publix. You're like, oh, maybe he got some bad chicken. <laughs> you know, you don't know what that means. Um, the passive symptoms are a little bit harder to treat, a little bit harder to find. They don't respond to medication as well. But one of the things that we find with people with psychotic disorders, and I put that in the paperwork, is tobacco. You know, majority of them are smokers. Um, there is something about the nicotine that calms the brain. Um, and it does. So if you look, I'm not a proponent of smoking, but if you break it down into components, um, there are some properties about nicotine, other than the fact that it might kill you down the line, um, that do have some subtle effect on the brain. If they didn't, people wouldn't be using it, right? So for some reason, folks that have schizophrenia um, tend to have that, that propensity to, to smoke um, and, and find it calming. Um, some of them will use alcohol. Um, some of them will use marijuana. I'm always vig vigilant with marijuana. It's not a friend of people with psychiatric disorders, especially psychosis, um, because it can give you kind of these very tangential psychotic symptoms. Um, so just be vigilant about something like that. So I think, sure, I'm not missing a page here. Um, I covered all the disorders, um, and I know I touch on things here and there. I'm trying to be mindful of time. There isn't a single thing that I talked about here that cannot be addressed and handled fairly successfully if you have a willing participant, right? There's a lot of really good medications. Um, you know, people argue with me, like, I don't want to be on medication for the rest of my life. And it's like, do you want to have quality of life for the rest of your life? Right? Yeah, if you do, sometimes um, that, that's the compromise you have to make. I don't like the side effects of medication. Th that is correct. Some of them will not have good side effects. There are other meds to mitigate that. We tend not to use the medications that have significant side effects because we don't want you to have them, and there are other effective medications. Unfortunately, genetically, for some folks, those are the older medications that wind up working the best in terms of controlling the symptoms, and they are the ones that will give you the side effects. I have a neighbor that's schizophrenic. I can always tell when he's on medication versus when he's well. I mean, when he's not well. Because when he's on medication, he drags. Like, I see him walk in the neighborhood, and I'm like, he's sane, but he drags. When he is not on medication, he'll run. He'll go jogging. I'm like, oh, he's not on meds because he's active, except he'll be jogging in his mother's dress with her purse. <laughs> or he'll be jogging away from, or running away, or driving away from a police car that's trying to pull him over. Um, it, it, it's that. So you, you start asking yourself, what is the quality of life? Is the quality of life being fully symptomatic not having the side effects, but having these ramifications? Or is the quality of life figuring out the way to manage um, and give up maybe some things, um, but in the long run maintain your health? And, and he's doing well for years now maintaining the health, right? So lot, lots of good, good options to deal with all of this. I'll go back to where I started um, with substance use. 
right? It is very difficult, um, and I will use the word virtually impossible, to treat a psychiatric disorder for someone who's actively using. They're not receptive, right? They're more impulsive, their inhibitions are limited. They don't see why they should give up whatever it is that they think they're gaining um, versus what you're offering them, which, you know, is not glorious. Nobody, you know, ever signed up for a week at Ridgeview versus a week at Cabo San Lucas with their bodies, right? Um, and, and that's the truth, and, it's, and it's, sometimes it takes some experiences to have the folks say, is it worth it? It's really probably not worth it. But the incidence of the population we see that get better is significantly higher than those who don't. Um, and those who don't usually will either wind up incarcerated or will wind up overdosing. Um, and thankfully, not a large percentage. And like Donna mentioned, you know, Narcan, there's a lot of lifesavers. We hear about them weekly, um, and it's good stuff. I didn't go a lot into specific drugs. I can probably give you an hour, if not more, on each single drug I talked about in more detail in terms of biology, in terms of what it does to you, in terms of what it does to your body, in terms of what it does to your family, in terms of what it does to your life. Um, the information is there. I'll be happy to pull it together um, for you all. Um, and, and a lot of these are, there's a lot of co-founding stuff. What I also find, people will do what their peer group does, right? And the worst thing for them is to not feel like they belong, right? If they're a football fan and they like to watch the game with their buddies and everybody can drink but they can't, that's not going to be a good experience for them. Um, if they're used to going to clubs or parties or wherever where people are using and they're the designated driver, it's not going to be a good experience. So teaching, especially our young folks, to have other good habits and, and friends and avenues and, and live a life that is full and robust that doesn't revolve around substance use, especially if they have some mental health issues or predisposition, um, is very effective. And I will repeat myself, and I already told you that, they listen to you. You don't think they do, and they might not hear you at the moment, and they might not think it applies to them. Um, but they hear you, so don't lose the opportunity. And if they don't hear you, they might hear somebody else. You know, they might think somebody else is cool. And that's one of the reasons, um, like you're bringing the speaker in. When my son was in middle school, there was a wrestler that came in and talked about his story of addiction and recovery. And the kids were fascinated. They were like, oh, my God, this guy is so successful and so great. And the more we destigmatize and put it out there and have people who they see irrelevant, they think the wrestler is cool. They don't think I'm cool, right? So I can tell them the same story, and I'd be like, yeah, okay. He can tell them the story, and they're like, this guy came and told us this great story. Um, my kids were younger. They used to do FCA at middle school. Um, and they would have a lot of speakers come in that shared their stories of, like, adversity or overcoming something. Um, and that was so powerful. And um, just the more we bring it, the more we bring it to our communities and to our kids, I think the more successful we will be in, in helping eradicate and prevent, right? Prevention best friend. Yeah, yeah, we can fix stuff down the line, but prevention is always um, a preferred course. All right. 
questions, comments, complaint, complaints go to um, Fair and John. <laughs> My name is Fair. It was a pleasure speaking to you. No, I'm That is an excellent question. That is, did you all hear her question? No. no. So if you're having active psychotic features, right, is it because you have a genetic hand that predisposes you to that? Is it because of substance use or is it just substance use? Great question because it depends, right? You can have those genes sitting there passively and never get triggered. You can have them never get triggered, right? Or you can have them get triggered by virtue of biology. That's just how it is, right? At a certain age, you start getting gray hair. A certain age, your gene might express itself and you might start, you know, having the symptoms. Um, can drugs activate the gene? Absolutely. Can they cause psychotic symptoms that are long-term? Yes, right? So short-term, yes, too, right? Because you cannot have a psychotic disorder and have psychotic features due to drug use. But you can do enough damage, and sometimes it only takes one, right, to do that. I had a patient years ago, young guy, did some LSD with friends several times, and one time had a really bad trip and could not get out of his mind the thought that he should put his baby in the microwave. Uh, he didn't act on it. He got therapy. But he had these persistent, very paranoid ideations and will probably have them for the rest of his life. Um, I had one lady who said to me years and years ago, I was a very young therapist and I never forget her because she was kind of, uh, you know, what's the southern expression, wrote hard and put out wet, uh, looking, looking gal, <laughs> politically correct to say that. Um, she lo looked like she lived a hard life for a relatively young person. And she said, I did a lot of drugs, and I swear to you, they permanently messed me up. She said, I will never be the same the way I was before, handle stress the same, respond to situations the same, or have the same cognitive function, meaning, yeah, she can do rote stuff, but she's probably never going to be an accountant or somewhere where there's a little complex thinking. So, yes, you can do biological damage. Yeah. Young adult age, it happens, uh, again, usually between ages of 18 24. Um, and I don't have a scientific study on that, so don't quote me on that. But a lot of times we see those kids come in right around the finals and midterms. So I have to believe that there is a stress of some sort. There is extreme stress, maybe lack of sleep, maybe not eating quite as well, maybe over worrying about finals. There, there is a trigger that expresses that gene. Uh, and it's the most devastating thing because that's, that's when we see that, the first episode. It's the college-age kid, and, and there is nothing worse for a parent than your kid made it to Georgia Tech or, you know, they got an athletic scholarship at UGA or some other great school, Vanderbilt. I've had a couple of kids from Vanderbilt. 
Um, and boom, you know, stress. For one kid, it was a combination of, of stress and starting to do drugs. Um, and they were not able to return to school after that because that it just kind of, you can't Band-Aid it, right? It's like putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone. You can heal it and, and you can fix it, but when it rains, it's going to ache a little bit, right? So you have to start tending to it. That's an excellent question. Um, I have an adult daughter who's a type 1 diabetic, um, and she's an addict. And um, when she can't get her drug of choice, she will allow her carbs to go really high and not take her insulin to the point that she's been in and out of the hospital many, many times. And when you ask her about it, she's just like, I was hungry. And yeah. It's almost like she's using her diabetes to get to be numb or something. Yeah. It's in an addiction. Well, it expresses itself, right, in this kind of the, the naughty, right, the compulsive behavior. I'm doing something illicit, and there's probably a little bit of rush from it. You know, so c carbohydrates are really interesting, right, because we, we, we love them, but we know they're not great for us um, because they release serotonin. Right? That's why when, when you lean, they call it lean and mean, <laughs> if you don't eat your carbs and you get kind of skinny, and they have other words for that too, um, it's because the way carbs are metabolized, right? Sugar. And sugar is what? It's delicious and it makes us feel happy. That's why salad is not comfort food. Macaroni and cheese is comfort food, right? So there's something to it, right? There's something to manipulating and managing your mood by carb use. Um, even if it's detrimental. So you're absolutely correct. That's yeah. Hard yeah. And that's why we talk some about, you know, eating disorders and some. There, there's that, that expression. I'm getting the Oscar music playing. One more question, and then I'll be happy to stay and chat with you. Is genetic testing used very often to sort out problems when there's not successful treatment of mental disorders? Excellent question. Did you all hear it? Is genetic testing used more often now to sort out some of these issues with um, possible genetic causes for mental health issues? Um, the answer is yes, we're getting better at it, right? So um, there are some psychiatrists now that run nutritional panels, right? Um, and, and just basic um, CBCs, right? You can have another, I can spend another hour talking about physical illnesses that mimic mental health, diabetes, mimics depression, untreated, um, vitamin D deficiency, um, thyroid issues. In men, low testosterone looks like depression, lack of energy, it's got all the symptoms, right? So there's a lot of things that we can measure in blood work. There are some things that they're starting to measure genetically. And actually, um, and Donna, you probably are a little more versed on that. Ridge, you just partnered up with a company that um, will send you a kit. And you can swab your cheek and send it back to them, and they do a genetic analysis. It's not a full-form gene expression of what predisposes you for illnesses. There are some things that do, like the food analysis, like what are you better off eating? Um, but what it does is it can pretty accurately predict which medications would be more effective for you. So medications are not one size fits all. Sometimes you go through several trials before you find one that works for you, right? So that's what it does. It can tell you with fair accuracy that 
Yeah, Prozac might not be your friend right now, but a combination of maybe um, like a Wellbutrin and Alexapro would be great, or um, Abilify with a mood stabilizer, um, and they're pretty intuitive, and that, that narrows your field, right? So instead of sampling all these things, you now go, well, this is the pocket I'm at. So uh, better and better. We're getting better and better, and there's more available. Still pricey, but um, some of the insurance companies are paying for it. Um, I know that the place that we're <coughs> using um, will not, I believe, and Donna, you will not let your price go above three hundred dollars. However, they manage it; they will not let that price escalate because some of them can get really some pricey. Yeah. Yeah, and and if you ever need that kind of information. Um, either Donna or myself, I'll give you my card if you like. We'll be happy, I can send it to you in the mail or I can send it via email. I'll be happy to share that with you. Uh, we try to stay abreast of all things yeah. that are new. It's and Genesite. Yeah. You can just go to their website and if you don't have a doctor or you're interested in getting that, you know, go to the doctor right on the website. Yep. All right, I'm sorry. We're going to wrap up, but like I said, please stay. One more question. What? going to be me. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> Special treatment. Tell me, tell us, all this talk about CBD oil and all this stuff, what, what is it about that that's good, bad, or otherwise? So, one is it's not a regulated substance, right? So what you get from one manufacturer or the other, there is no uniformity. So you really don't know what you're getting, the potency of what you're getting, and whether or not it has THC in it. And I'll tell you with confidence, right? So as a recovering professionals coordinator, my job is to do all the drug monitoring for all the professionals that have um, any kind of issues with our licensing boards and report the test results. So I'm always looking for positives. So what will give you a positive for THC? CBD. And people are like, no, but it doesn't have any marijuana in it. Well, okay, but you try to explain that to your licensing board, right? Because you can't disprove a positive test. You can tell me it came from I don't know, your, your cat running through the living room, but a positive is a positive is a positive, so you can't prove to me that you didn't smoke marijuana. So first of all. Second of all, uh, you know, the motion and the action, right, becomes repetitive. It's like being a smoker. Um, and you start pairing, you know, that's what you start looking for, for relaxation, whatever. I also don't believe in snake oil. You know, if you look at what they say CBD is good for, it'll fix everything. Mm -hmm. If you're bald, it'll give you hair. <laughs> if you have, you know, libido problems, it'll make you a god. You know, it will do anything. So what exactly does it do? I, I don't know. It might do some things. I'm not saying it doesn't. But the reality is that we have not because there's no uniformity and there's so many sources and there's so many growers now out west and they all want to grow a better product. Well, what's a better product? It's a stronger product, right? So what does that mean, right? So it's a breed of a certain marijuana plant or different ones. So they have certain strength. They isolate certain um, components of it. So at the end of the day, I don't know if the guy in Oregon has better pot than the guy in California or the guy in Colorado, right? Because the guidelines are different. Georgia's okay for CBD, but we're not okay for marijuana, but Colorado is, and Oregon is, and Washington State is. So if your son goes to Colorado and brings his friends back some stuff and says, I got this great CBD, you don't know that it is a CBD. It could very easily be THC. Um, and it's also a gateway. 
maybe not as big as some other ones, right? But if you're hanging with your friends and you're like, yeah, I can't sleep really well, I'll take some CBD, it relaxes me. Uh, and look, no problems. Well, maybe tomorrow I'll have a drink with it or two drinks. So there's definitely that component of, of the relaxation um, of your command center. And I'm not saying it's bad and I'm not offering an opinion on it. I know that in our program, it is not allowed, right? And there are reasons that it's not allowed. Um, and we have seen way too many young adults, especially, um, use that as a gateway. Well, if I can do this and there's nothing wrong with it and it's legal and it helps my hip pain, my, my headache, my whatever, then it becomes, well, you know, no harm, no fall. What's the harm then in the next thing? We can have the same argument about Adderall. It's legal. Alcohol, it's legal, right? There's a lot of legal things that will kill you. So just because it's there and it's available, I'm very vigilant and what's the use, right? So if you have a child who's going through cancer treatment, right, and their doctor says they should use that and they have a manufacturer that the hospital works with, absolutely, right? But if you have someone who thinks recreationally it's a good thing, I'm, I'm going to be on the fence. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Laura. Thank you.